Well, good evening and welcome. We uh, carry on this evening in our study of the Gospel of John. We've made it as far as chapter 5, and many scholars regard chapter 5 of the Gospel of John as one of the most significant chapters in the Gospel itself. Certainly it marks a real turning point in the ministry of Jesus, uh, particularly in regard to the attitude of the Jewish leadership to Jesus. Uh, In chapter 5 we see uh, the healing of the man at uh, the pool at Bethesda. We'll look at that in just a moment. And that really will bring the question, and we'll look at it, uh, are we ready for Jesus to change our lives? You know, we often make these bold claims and statements about how we want to live for Jesus, but do we really want to do that? Are we prepared for the consequences? So we'll, uh, we'll explore that in just a moment. But, but then we're going to get to this, this battle, if you like. Let the battle commence, where Jesus will see who launches four salvos, uh, as it were, against the Jews to prove to them his deity. He actually calls four witnesses to testify, and he pronounces his verdict on the Jews themselves. Really, really significant moment in his ministry. It's the moment, really, that the Jewish leadership turn against Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has been very much a a rabbi, a teacher, a prophet, somebody who they were probably not quite sure where he was coming from. But this now, as we get to chapter 5, things are going to change, which set the tone for the rest of the gospel. In uh, chapter 6, which we'll also look at this evening, um, we're going to see the feeding of the 5,000, that well-known story that we've all grown up with um, from from childhood. Um, But incredibly, Jesus turns down the opportunity to be king. The people want to take him and make him their king. And when we stop and think about it, isn't that what Jesus wanted to happen? Didn't Jesus come to be the king of the Jews? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but Jesus turns down this opportunity very significantly. And then we see, as a result of this, um, the people then are dispersed. And Jesus sends the disciples on ahead, and then he comes to them in the middle of the night, walking on the water. Another one of the miracles that we'll be looking at uh, that John recalls for us in his Gospel. But rather than build on his popularity after all these things, the feeding of the 5,000 and this miracle and everything else... Jesus then lays out his terms and conditions. And it's really significant that when we look at the church today and the way that Christianity is soft and presented, we see that Jesus is not seeker-friendly. We see also that he's not a motivational speaker. There's a lot of people in pulpits, in churches around the world, that are opting for this kind of um, pop psychology type of approach where they're trying to make people feel good about themselves. Uh, you know, using very much a worldly uh, motivational uh, ideas and techniques. Jesus certainly doesn't go down that road. Uh, he's not come to tell people that actually they're not that bad after all. Jesus has come to, to tell it like it is. And that will then lead on to the issue which we'll uh, look at briefly at the close this evening uh, of true and false conversions. And uh, you'll see how that all fits together in a moment or two. So let's just jump straight into chapter 5. When we read chapter 5, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now after this, after these things, it's another one of the metatouters that we find in uh, the Gospel of John. Um, You'll be familiar, um, I'm sure, in the book of Revelation, 
John there seems to use that phrase frequently as kind of markers uh, to separate things up. And that's uh, how it's used here after these scenes. Now, we're not told how much time has passed from the events of chapter 4 that we were looking at in the last session. But clearly there's been um, some water flowing under the bridge, as it were. Uh, and we get to a new chapter, not just in the book, but in Jesus' ministry. And we're told there was a feast of the Jews. Um, this uh, feast, uh, we'll talk about it in a little while, um, but uh, there was uh, three specific feasts that we're told about in Exodus 23 where all able-bodied Jews were to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, we actually read in Exodus 23, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year, thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. And it goes on, it says, And the feast of harvest, which we know as Pentecost, and the feast of ingathering tabernacles, uh, also known as to us. So we find here Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And it seems to be the second feast that John records Jesus attending. Um, the first being the Passover where he made the, the cords and drove the money changers out of the temple. And we saw that back in John chapter 2. Now we're not specifically told which feast it is, but it would seem most likely to be the second of four Passovers that John actually records in his Gospel, uh, which seems to span the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. So anyway, that is like John... Uh, Jesus now, in, in accordance with the Jewish law, goes up for this feast. And we're told, now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches. Bethesda itself, interesting name, means house of mercy. Uh, now again, we've commented so many times that the, there are no meaningless details in the Bible. And this house of mercy uh, proves to be just that. And a very significant event is about to occur here. Again, John makes mention that there's five porches. Why does he record that? I mean, again, remember that John is recording these things many, many, many years after the event. John is an old man now. Um, we believe after he's been on Patmos and received the revelation, he's come back to Ephesus, pastor of the church there, and he's recording these things for us. And he remembers back to this time and seeing the fact that there were five porches. Now, no doubt he'd been there many times, John himself. Jesus himself obviously would be very familiar, but John makes this point that there's five. Now again, five in scripture seems to denote grace. Uh, And there seems to be this overtone of grace and mercy connected with this place, uh, which we're about to see. The sheep market itself... Uh, was the uh, adjacent to, to the back in- entrance, if you like, to the temple area. Uh, and it was a place where the lambs were washed prior to being offered for sacrifice. Um, uh, according to Moses, the law of Moses, um, the offerings had to be without blemish. So they would be cleansed and washed before they came to be presented in the temple itself. And it seems to be that Jesus intentionally chooses now to come to this pool um, and... Uh, it's, uh, it's quite interesting because we find in our own lives that Jesus comes to meet us where we are in our predicament, in our situation. And uh, this miracle, this is the third of the seven uh, that John records for us. And uh, we read that in these, so in these five porches, lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. The world is full of spiritually impotent folk, folk uh, blind, halt, withered, and they're just waiting for their circumstances to change, just like this man who we're going to see uh, introduced in just a moment. They're just waiting. Um, this verse says here that uh, they were waiting 
for the moving of the water. You know, people wait for whatever it is that they, they hope is going to change in their life, uh, whether they're going to meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright and everything's going to change for the better or uh, whether they're going to win the lottery or whatever it is. People in this world pin their hopes on all these kind of things. And there's so much time uh, is wasted. Again, significantly, right before the eyes of the people that were waiting around this pool, these, these um, impotent folk, the blind, halt, withered, as we have listed there, they're all waiting for the moving of the water, but what they're seeing going on in front of them is the cleansing of these lambs. These lambs who themselves are pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus being the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that really is the, uh, the ultimate um, uh, infirmity that we all suffer from, uh, that of sin. So we carry on. Verse 4, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Uh, some commentators that um, seem to be a little sceptical about some of these uh, verses and part of the reason is because of this, this strange appearance by this angel here. What, who is this angel? Is, is this a good angel? Is this an angel of the Lord? Um, what are we to, to understand here? Well, as I say, some, some commentators seem to argue that this, this verse shouldn't be in the original manuscripts, but actually there's plenty of sources to attest that it should be included. Uh, in fact, just the context itself uh, really does demand that. But... It could have been an angel that the Lord was providing, but equally, this could have been a, uh, an angel, an emissary of Satan. We know from 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan appears as an angel of light. And there's nothing better than he'd like um, than to lead people into a false sense of security, leading them into a place where they're expecting some sort of miracle in their lives and just keeping them waiting and waiting and waiting. And Satan could easily create the appearance of miracles. Now, we're not given enough details to really draw any conclusions. Um, so we don't know uh, any more than, than just our, our conjecture here. Um, but we are given this indication that these people were waiting, that when this water was troubled, uh, who, whosoever was first to step in, um, they would be healed of whatsoever disease they had. And then verse 5 carries on. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. Interesting, 38 years, it's the time children of Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. And uh, again, this man has spent these 38 years um, almost wandering in the wilderness himself, uh, waiting uh, to enter his own promised land. Uh, Seems to be some sort of parallel there, certainly. Verse 6 then, when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he'd been now a long time in that case, he said to him, wilt thou be made whole? There's a lot in this verse 6 here. Jesus saw him lying there. Uh, it's interesting, we read in the commentary by uh, Jameson, Fawcett and Brown. They say that um, Jesus doubtless visited the spot just to perform this cure. So he knew where to find his patient and the whole previous uh, history of his case. It's very comforting to realise that Jesus sees and he knows. We're told that Jesus saw him lie there and he knew that he'd been now a long time in that case. Jesus sees us and he knows the situation, the predicament that we're in in our lives and uh, all the things that are going on around us. We then have this, this really, really 
important question. Wilt thou be made whole? Now, to you and I, we may think, well, that's an obvious question. Of course this man wants to be made whole. But actually, it's a really necessary question. Think of our own lives. Jesus asks us, in a sense, the same question. Do you want to follow me? Do you want to be whole? Are you prepared for the cost? This man had to consider, was he really so sick of his old life that he really wanted a new life? Sometimes there's a a comfort in the things that we know, in the familiarity of our circumstances. The, The mire sometimes that we're in actually affords us some sort of comfort. In John 3.19, we were told there that men love darkness rather than light. And naturally, we tend to migrate to things that we, we almost seem to settle for things that are not the best because we're comfortable with what we have. And we don't necessarily like the challenges of all that would be presented by going for something better. Jesus really searching the man now, getting the man to search his own thoughts. Do you want to be made whole? Again, as I say, that question we need to ask ourselves. You know, before somebody says, oh, yeah, I want to be a Christian, are you prepared to take up your cross and follow Jesus? It's not just a case of, oh, yeah, sounds like a good idea. Do you really want to give everything to this new life? Your life will change from here on. People will ask you questions. People will say, but before you were like this, now you've changed. This man had to be prepared for that, and so also do we. Verse 7, the impotent man asked him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another step down before me. Again, this is very important because this is step one in our road to healing for ourselves. You know, it's an acknowledgement of our need. And we have to get to that place where we realise that we need a saviour. There's a, an adage, isn't there, that um, we, we often hear, it's certainly not biblical, even though people tend to assume sometimes it is, that God helps those who help themselves. Well, nothing could be further than the truth, further from the truth. And this man is a, a testimony of this fact, that actually God helps those who realise they can't help themselves. People who are in the situation, they realise they cannot do it on their own, and they cry out to a saviour, they're the ones who God responds to. It's those who are humble enough to acknowledge their need. And that's the thing that this man does here, verse 7. He realises that he has nobody to help him. And Jesus then, verse 8, says to him, Rise, take up my bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. Now, this man has been in this predicament for 38 years. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks the word and he's healed. Life-changing moment for this man. And we're told that it was the same day was the Sabbath. Now, again, there's no coincidences. And it seems to be that Jesus intentionally picks this day and this moment, A, to come and reach out to this man and gives us this beautiful picture of how we need to be dependent entirely upon him and that we can so often waste our lives waiting for the moving of whatever it is in our lives, looking for something else, when actually we need to be looking past the water to that spotless lamb, as it were. But also, we have this issue here that it's the Sabbath day, and that seems to be what Jesus is intentionally doing on this day in this place. We carry on in verse 10. The Jews, therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. 
Here we see this contrast between law and grace. Law says you can't, but grace says you can. The law cannot show mercy, uh, but praise God, what the law could not do, grace did. And uh, it's uh, interesting here, we, we, when we find in the Gospel of John the, the term, the Jews therefore, it's not looking at um, all the nation, all the, the, the people in Israel. Uh, specifically, John uses his term, the Jews, to refer to the Jewish leadership. And again, uh, this, this issue of law versus grace. Um, Paul will make the point in the book of Galatians that the sole purpose of the law was to confine all under sin, to show us that we could not meet God's righteous standard. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture here that uh, the law shows us the desperate nature of our predicament, uh, but it reveals the need for a saviour. And uh, the, the Jews here, simply all they have is the, the law and they, they fall back on the law and they point this man to the law saying, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he said unto them, he that made me whole, the same said to me, take up thy bed and walk. Then they asked him, what man is he that said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? This is, this is terrible for the Jews. This is somebody that has intentionally instructed this man to break the Mosaic law. And uh, we carry on, verse 13. And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away. Interesting again, Jesus hiding himself, avoiding all the attention. Uh, A multitude, we're told, being in that place. And this again becomes an authority issue. When we see, when people look at your life and they see that things have changed, um, there'll be this kind of like, you know, well, who said this? Who gave you the authority to do this? Or, you know. Um, and we find this so often in different circumstances we, we come up against. When we're obedient to the word of God, as this man had been here, expect to be challenged. But just as this man does, we should always refer our interrogators back to the authority, uh, which is the word of God. We're told Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and powerful. And uh, again, verse 13, he that was healed didn't know uh, who it was for Jesus, we're told, had uh, conveyed himself away. Um, so we pick up verse 14. Afterward, Jesus find him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. This is a scripture that some people have uh, struggled with. But Jesus isn't saying that his healing would be taken away from him um, if he were to sin again. Clearly we're told, uh, we're told in First John that we all sin. Um, and it's not something that once we become believers suddenly ceases in our lives. We don't suddenly cease to sin. In fact, John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Jesus isn't claiming or suggesting to this man that if he were to sin, he would lose his healing. But this man has been in this predicament for 38 years. And Jesus says that there is something worse than being infirm physically. And that is being infirm spiritually for eternity. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he kept making reference to hell. It's interesting how many times Jesus refers to hell through his ministry. And the reality of this place of separation from God. And again, people get very confused sometimes about really what hell is. Uh, they make jokes about seeing all their, their friends in hell and having a party. That's, that's not going to be the case. Hell is a place where people will be separated from their creator. And people just don't have a concept uh, in this life of just what that will be like. 
Um, we could go off on tangents on that one, but moving on. Um, we're told then, uh, verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now this gets to the nitty gritty now. See, the penalty for violation of the Sabbath was stoning. And that's what the Jews have in mind. This Jesus character, this prophet, this person from Nazareth has come along, has come onto the scene, he's told this man uh, to, to pick up his bed. No, no mention, by the way, is made by the Jews here of this miracle. They seem to bypass that, even though no doubt they'd seen this man many a time. They seem to bypass that completely. And they focus on the fact that this man is breaking the law. But they don't seem to worry too much about him. They're more concerned that Jesus has told him to do this, which is this violation of the Sabbath law. And to them, that is something that's worthy of death. Now, verse 17, Jesus answered them. So obviously now they've got together. Jesus answered them, my father works hitherto and I work. And we're told, verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now again, for anybody who tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, this is another one of the classic cases, particularly that John records for us, where that is explicitly stated to be the case, that Jesus is claiming himself deity. He's making himself equal with God. If that were not the case, he would counter what the Jews say here. The Jews say that um, because he has said that God was his father, he's making himself equal with God. They understood exactly, and we can be grateful that when we're sometimes a bit slow to cotton on, the Jewish leaders um, seem to understand, uh, and they know exactly what was being implied by Jesus saying this. Uh, that God the Father works uh, and him, him giving himself this authority for doing what he's doing. And we now see, as I mentioned in the introduction, Jesus launching four attacks, four salvos against the Jewish leaders. In verse uh, 19 through 23, we're going to see this relationship between the Father and Son mentioned. Um, verse 24, we have the mission of the Son. Verse 25 through 29, we have the authority of the Son. Verse 30 through 39, we find that four witnesses are called to testify on Jesus' behalf, as it were, that he is God, that this is all what this this chapter is going on uh, now to deal with. And then uh, to round the chapter off, verse 40 through 47, uh, the verdict is going to be pronounced uh, by Jesus himself. So verse 19 then, this relationship between the Father and Son. Jesus now picking up on this theme that he's just started here. And he says, verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Again, we've mentioned before, when we have verily, it's something that we want to take note of. Verily, verily, you really want to take note of it. But when we have the I say unto you under there, this is really heavy emphasis. And Jesus heavily emphasizing this point. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Now just note, of course, here that, that Jesus is the first person here to be calling God Father. That in itself was something that was so foreign to the Jewish leadership. But he's talking about his relationship. He says, for what things soever he doeth, those also doeth the Son likewise. Again, 
The, the Jewish leaders would have seen this straight away as blasphemy. Jesus claiming to be one with the Father. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. This, uh, the Father loveth the Son. It's, um, the Greek word is uh, phileo, not agape, as you might expect, but phileo is a specifically chosen word by Jesus here. Um, it's a relationship between equals. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. For the Father loves the Son. They have this incredible relationship together and shows him all things that he that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. In verse 21, for as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. Again, see that Jesus is claiming the same authority and power that his Father has. And then look at verse 22. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. This couldn't be said of any mere prophet, a mere man. If Jesus was not God or manifest in the flesh, he could not say this. For God could not commit all judgment unto anybody other than himself. And again, this point is being heavily emphasised here. Verse 23 gives us the reason that all men should honour the Son. So the Father loves the Son. Uh, we have this relationship of authority uh, being given to the Son. That all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. Can you imagine the Jews listening to this now? As they're being told that the, um, the, they should honour Jesus as they honour the Father. He that honours not the Son, honours not the Father which sent him. In this uh, regard of looking at the, the judgment that's committed to the Son, we read in Acts 17, verse 30 through 31, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Dr. Luke there in the book of Acts telling us that Jesus is the one who's been appointed by God to judge all things. Just uh, referring back again to the verses we're looking at, Oswald Chambers makes the following comment. All through Jesus manifested a strong personal identity, but the dominant note was the submission of it all to his father. He separated his holy self for God's purposes. For their sakes I sanctify myself, John seventeen nineteen. Before he spoke, he listened with the inner ear to his father. He never allowed thought to originate from himself. That is the meaning of communion, an intelligent, determined submission. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. That's the verse we've just seen from John 5.19. Uh, I love that line there. Before he spoke, he listened with the inner ear to his father. If only we could do that before we speak, uh, how much uh, easier um, life would become for us. Uh, he never allowed thought to originate from himself. Uh, I think that's great. That's the way we should be. We should allow the Lord to speak to us, to direct not only our, our feet, um, but our mouth as well. Uh, we carry on. In um, one of uh, Dave Hunt's books, he makes this comment, um, just regarding the, the, the love that exists between the Father and Son. Uh, he says, uh, The Bible makes it very clear that in and of himself, God is love. 
the God of Islam and Judaism, could not be uh, love in and of himself. He would have to create other beings in order to have the experience of loving or of being loved. Yet consistently from Genesis through Revelation, the Bible presents a God who did not need to create any beings to experience love. This God is fully complete in himself, being three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are separate and distinct, yet at the same time eternally one God. They loved and communed and fellowship with each other and took counsel together before the universe, angels or mankind, were brought into existence. I think that's incredible, the relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay, in verse 24, we carry on. We have there the recorded for us, if you like, the mission of the Son. Again, it starts with, verily, verily, I say unto you. That's our marker, if you like. Uh, and we carry on. He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. These are, if you like, the terms and conditions. And notice what Jesus says. He that hears my word and believes. So it's hearing and believing. Uh, In a moment, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 19 um, to see some uh, um, very insightful uh, and helpful comments that Jesus gives us regarding those that are saved. Um, But notice before we do, in this verse, we have that he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. Not can one day maybe attain to it or is working towards it, but has everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life that absolute assurance that we can have if we are born again in Matthew 13 as I mentioned we in verse 19 uh, we have beginning there really the explanation of the parable of the four soils uh, Jesus says when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart this is he which received the seed by the wayside. So we've got somebody that hears the word, but they don't understand it. Uh, so many people are like that. They, they hear the gospel, they, they hear these things, but it doesn't penetrate, it makes no difference. If you like, we could class it as something like spiritually stillborn. They just don't get it off, off the base. Um, but verse 20, we carry on. Uh, another example Jesus gives. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that hears the word, and anon receives with joy. Uh, sorry, anon with joy receives it. Yet he has no root in himself, but draws uh, endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, by and by he's offended. So now we have somebody that hears the word, and to start with, they receive it with joy. There's an initial show of what appears to be life. Um, these are those, if you like, that, that seem to put forth leaves. There seems to be a bit of a, an excitement to start with, but there's no real fruit because we're told. Um, because of the word, they become offended. Again, this all is about the relationship with the word of God, with, with the words that Jesus speaks as well. This kind of person so often we refer to as a backslider because they seem to start well, but then they have no roots, so they don't go down into the soil of God's word. Technically, really, they're a false convert. The third example, uh, verse 22, And he that received the seed among thorns is he that hears the word, And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So many people are like that. They want to give this Jesus thing a go. You know, and they go into it with all sincerity. But they hear the word, but they don't understand it. It doesn't really sink in. They have no depth of soil. And as soon as the the things of this life start to to come round again and uh, grab their their interest, the word is choked and they become unfruitful. Again, they bear no fruit. Uh, Again, we often refer to them as backsliders, but really, to to be absolutely correct and honest, they're false converts. They never were converted in the 
the first place. And then we have the, the, the final example uh, that Jesus gives in verse 23 of Matthew 13, where he says, But he that received the seed into good ground is he that hears the word and understands it, which also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So this is a true convert who's passed, if you like, from death to life, as Jesus said, who's heard the word and understood it. It's, it's not just about hearing, um, but it's understanding what we hear. It's taking root. And notice the difference here is that fruit is produced. Uh, the evidence of fruit is the real test in somebody's life. If there's no fruit, as uh, I heard Ron Maxson once say, if there's no fruit, you've got a question of the connection to the root. Um, something we can understand very clearly. And Jesus himself said, uh, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Okay, so let's uh, carry on. That was, of course, the mission of the Son. He's come to bring people into a relationship with the Lord that is fruitful, where a new life begins, where they go down into the soil of God's word. Um, but at verse 25 through to 29, we now get the authority of the Son. Uh, again, it starts, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this. And you can imagine the Jews were marveling as Jesus is saying this. This is not something that the prophets would dare to say. Um, But Jesus says, For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The Jews clearly understood that God was judge. Jesus is now claiming that that authority to pass judgment on all mankind has been given to him. And now we have mention of these resurrections, as it were. Um, We have the, the resurrection of life referred to, and the resurrection of damnation. Uh, the resurrection of life is also referred to, uh, Luke fourteen fourteen as the resurrection of the just. Uh, in Revelation 20, verse 6, uh, the, the first resurrection. In Hebrews eleven thirty five is referred to as a better resurrection. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 11, is simply referred to as the resurrection of the dead. But it's better to understand the resurrection of life as a category rather than a single event. It's not a once-only event where people will be raised and that's it, it's done. Uh, and I'll give you the scriptural um, basis for that comment in a moment. Um, the other resurrection Jesus speaks of is the resurrection of damnation, uh, which is obviously the resurrection of the unjust. Um, and that is a single event. Again, we'll look at the scriptures. First, then, the resurrection of life. Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 15, picking up verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. So Jesus is saying that he's the the first fruits of this resurrection, this resurrection of life. Um, And then we're told that afterward there'll be others. And notice verse 24. uh, It starts by saying, then comes the end. Well, that's very significant because it means that the resurrection of the just happens and occurs before we get to the end. Um, 
I'll leave you to think through the implications of that. Um, but Jesus, obviously, then is the first fruits. Then we're told that there are those at his coming. Well, that would refer to uh, the rapture of the church, which we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, uh, where clearly we have uh, those that are already with the Lord in heaven come back. They receive their new bodies, as do those who are alive on the earth at that time. Um, we're all caught up to meet him in the air. Uh, forever we'll be with the Lord. And we're told that's a great comfort. But there's also another group that are included in this resurrection of life, resurrection to eternal life. Uh, And they're mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses um, 4 through 6, as being, if you like, the ones that have come out of the tribulation. Um, Now, for various technical reasons, I don't believe they they are part of the bride of Christ, but they are still beneficiaries of this resurrection to life. The resurrection of damnation uh, we have recorded for us in Revelation chapter 20 uh, as this a single event. And uh, we read verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Notice that those people there are judged according to their works. That's a scary thing to be judged by because none of our works will ever cover our sin. People use this kind of balance that, well, a good deed outweighs a bad deed. Well, where do you get that kind of measure from? I mean, how do you know that? And, you know, no court of law would accept that. If you've committed a crime, you don't use the the basis, well, I did some good stuff as well. And the judge doesn't go, well, that's okay. Then No, no, if you've done something wrong, if you've committed an offence, then that stands on its own and you have to pay for that offence regardless of the good things Um, but people will be judged there according to their works what a scary day that will be verse 13 carries on in revelation 20 and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death you see if you're born just once you'll die twice you'll die physically and ultimately you'll have this eternal separation from god which was referred to here as the second death if you're born twice you're born naturally uh, born of water and then born of the spirit as we read about in john chapter 3 then you are not going to suffer that eternal separation from god but you have a new life which is eternal okay so that's talking about the authority that the son has got again the jews at this as jesus is saying this must have been just Pulling the hair out, it must have been just wanting to stone Jesus right there and then as he's saying these things, claiming that he is God. Verse 30 we carry on. We now find that four witnesses are called to testify to that which Jesus is saying. And he starts himself by saying, I could of my own self uh, do nothing as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And because of this, he's saying, you know, and it will be the same today in a court of law. You can't testify of your own position, innocence, guilt, whatever. You have to have other witnesses called that will testify um, regarding the situation. Um, of course, if you testify of yourself, then why should anybody believe that? And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, my witness, if I witness of myself, my witness is not true. And now we find these witnesses are called. And first of all, we have John the Baptist in verse 32 through 35. Jesus then appeals to the works that he's done as a witness, verse 36. And then the Father himself uh, as a witness in verse 37 through 38. And then finally the scriptures are a witness of Jesus and his deity and that which he's claiming here. So let's look at verse 32. Jesus says, there's another that bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnessed of me is true. 
you sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. We saw that as we were going through uh, the early chapters of this book. But I, rejoice, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. And then referring to John, he says, he was a burning and shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. So John, Jesus is saying that you know, for a while they actually accepted what John was saying and what he was doing. And he's saying, John testified of me, who I am, very clearly. The second witness then is the works. Verse 36 we read, but I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And he's just healed this man that's been crippled for 38 years. You know, and so many other miracles already uh, in Jesus' ministry to this point had been seen and been given as evidence uh, to support his claim that he was God manifest in the flesh. And Jesus says that he will do even greater works, which clearly uh, we will see, particularly regarding his resurrection. And the Father himself, which has sent me, has borne witness of me. So now the Father is being called. This is the third witness. Uh, you have neither heard his voice nor at any time seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he is sent, him you believe not. Now, Jesus here is just saying that he has seen the Father. Uh, but these Jews, you haven't seen the Father, but I've seen him. And the Father has testified of me. Well, clearly we have on two separate occasions both at Jesus baptism and transfiguration where God says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased Um, and throughout the the scriptures God had testified of the one to come and what he would be like his characteristics and everything else so much of Jesus life laid out in advance clearly the father had testified of the son and then the fourth witness is the scriptures and we read verse 39, search the scriptures for in them think ye, uh, uh, sorry, uh, you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. And clearly the scriptures do. We see the examples with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, uh, the very spot where 2,000 years later uh, another father would offer his son. Uh, seeing that as a type, the scriptures testifying to Jesus. We saw in chapter 3, the serpent on the pole, sin being judged and lifted up. Uh, and Jesus himself bore our sins on that tree. He was lifted up and, and, and bore that sin. Um, so we have so many of these models and examples in scripture, all pointing forward uh, and declaring who the Messiah would be and what he would do and everything else. And Jesus saying, the scriptures testify of me. Now, obviously, the Jews don't accept this. Um, and because of this, Jesus then pronounces his verdict on, it, on them, which brings us up to the end of the chapter. We read verse 40. And you will not come to me that you might have life, for I receive not honor from men. But I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. And that can apply equally to Barabbas, who they received uh, in his own name, uh, but ultimately looking forward to Antichrist, who uh, for a time they will receive, who will come in his own name. Verse 44, how can you believe which receives honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, 
you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Uh, take note, all you liberal theologians who would tell us that uh, Moses didn't write the, uh, the first five books. Jesus clearly says that Moses wrote of him. Um, and we know the authors of the other books, so that only leaves the Torah. So clearly Jesus is referring to the fact that Moses did indeed write those books. Verse 47, but if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Now, it's interesting, those that would uh, adopt positions where they question the authority of the first five books also will question the authority of the things that Jesus says. So just as Jesus said, if you don't believe the things that Moses wrote, then you're not going to believe the things that Jesus said either. Um, but what did Moses write? I mean, Jesus is saying here, look, you know, I don't need to, to, uh, to condemn you because your own... Uh, Faith in Moses, as it were, uh, is going to condemn you because Moses wrote of me. Um, well, where did Moses write of Jesus? Well, right from the beginning. Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. We have there seven words with 28 letters, uh, which is interesting in itself. Um, but in the middle of those seven words, uh, the fourth word is, um, is, is untranslated in the English. It's an et. Uh, it just, you have two letters. It's an aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and a tau, which is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If we were to put that into the Greek, the Greek equivalent would be an alpha and omega. So in a sense, if we read that sentence, we have, in the beginning, God, the alpha and the omega, created the heavens and the earth. Some Jews in the past have actually tried to get this little bit in the middle here, this aleph and the tav, actually removed um, from the text because they, they find it offensive. Uh, they, they, they try and obviously get away from the fact that this seems to be pointing very clearly to Jesus Christ. But there's also another indication here because the word Elohim, the word that's translated God, is plural. It's referring to the Godhead. So Moses, in the very first line he pens, there's two references to Jesus Christ. Um, as uh, Jesus said, uh, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Okay, so that brings us then into chapter 6. Chapter 6, we start, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Again, John is writing this uh, many, many years after the events, um, somewhere in the age now of, of 95 to 100 years old, uh, we believe John was, after he's come back from Patmos and he's writing this down, recalling these events. And obviously, by then, the, the Sea of Galilee had become known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, as was often the way, uh, men of uh, fame and notoriety soon disappear into the, uh, uh, the history books uh, and their, their legacy disappears, whereas obviously things of God last forever. And the Sea of Galilee is obviously now known still today as the Sea of Galilee, but then obviously uh, as the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 2, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Now, if our comments earlier were correct, that the, the, in the previous chapter, chapter 5, the feast that it refers to as Passover at that time, um, then this would appear to be occurring about a year later. Uh, now, that probably is the case because John only gives us very um, specific details through the early years or through the early ministry years of Jesus. Uh, most of John's gospel focuses on the last week, Passion Week, as it's sometimes called. Verse 5, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? This is great because he says, and this he said to prove him. 
for he knew himself, for he, he himself knew what he would do. When God asks us questions, when Jesus asks us questions, it's not because he's looking for information. He knows everything. And Jesus here knew what he was going to do, but he's asking this to prove, to test Philip, to see uh, what response he's going to give. And the question, you know, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Well, Philip has seen the miracles that Jesus had done. The, the response should have been, well, Lord, we can't do this, but you can and sat back you know, to, to watch what, what the Lord was going to do. Just roll it back onto the Lord. Lord, it's your problem. You know, and I'm going to trust that you can resolve this. Instead, Philip starts to get into a bit of a flap. And he says, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Uh, be the, uh, Philip's saying that you know, e- even if we were to spend you know, 200 days wages, uh, we wouldn't be able to get enough bread for even them just to have a little bit to eat. He's trying to find a natural solution to this problem. So often we try to do that in our lives, find a natural solution. But really the, the, the way we should do things is to seek the Lord because so often it's the Lord who will do things supernaturally in ways that we can never even conceive of. And then we have verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fish. And then there's a kind of pause. And you can imagine all the disciples just look round. <laughs> it's um, Andrew at this point and he's like yeah uh, then he kind of adds this like, comment uh, but, but what are they among so many he's like oh, I wish I hadn't said that it's, it's great here we have this, this lad and obviously we see in that that this little that this young lad gives is taken by the Lord and used in an incredible way uh, and it's the same with us we may think we've not got a lot to give the Lord but if we just give that which we have, we'll be amazed with what he can do with it. You see, again, we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, it's a really good job that lab was there because had we have not had any loaves and fishes, what would Jesus have done? He created everything out of nothing. He didn't need the loaves and the fishes. And the, the, the comment here um, made by, by Andrew um, you know, what are they so, among so many? The, the Lord takes even this, which Andrews might obviously manage to search out, and, and that's just the way the Lord does. You know, even the, the pitiful things that we can offer, um, where we think we might be able to partly solve a solution until we stop and think about how ma- massive that problem is, um, God will still uh, use us in, in these things, and that's just, just incredible. Verse 10 says, Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in a number, about 5,000. Now if you add to the women and the children, uh, we could have been anything up to about 15,000 people. You start to see the magnitude of the problem. And then we're told, verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were sat down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. So the disciples are working. They're on duty here. They're not sitting eating themselves. They're doing this, uh, this work that Jesus assigned them here. And when they were filled, uh, now the technical word is stuffed, they were absolutely full to overflowing. Uh, They couldn't eat another thing. Uh, That is the provision of God. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Um, And uh, we carry on. He said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Uh, An interesting verse, we'll see that occur, that idea occur later as well. We'll comment on it then. Um, therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten 
Uh, why the 12 baskets? Well, we have 12 disciples. Uh, in one sense, representative of the house of Israel. Um, but we have these, these 12 baskets uh, uh, gathered in. And clearly we're told in scripture that a laborer is worthy of his wages. In Matthew 19, 29, we're told everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. You see, the disciples, no doubt, were hungry as well, but they've been serving the Lord, and God provides for them these 12 basketfuls. Verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of truth that prophet that should come into the world. Well, which prophet are they referring to? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, uh, Moses had said that there would a prophet uh, that would come that would be like him. Uh, he said that a prophet like me will the Lord raise up for you. And him you shall hear, he said. And Moses obviously had turned, or Moses, as far as the people could say, had provided, um, after he led them across the sea, he provided manna for them. Well, Jesus, in a sense, had led these people across the sea. They'd followed him across the sea. And now he's providing food for them. And they're starting to see, hang on, this is somebody like Moses. When Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. This is Jesus turning down that opportunity to become king. But you see, he wouldn't do it at that cost. Uh, Oswald Chambers makes uh, the comment that uh, Jesus wouldn't take uh, this opportunity. Uh, he says, why he just fed 5,000 of them? Yes, but we uh, read that Jesus departed again into a mountain himself alone. He would not be king at that price. You see, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Another telling comment from Oswald Chambers, uh, and bear in mind this is uh, going back, um, I guess, some uh, 80, 90 years or so now. Uh, But he says, what is the attitude of the church today? And this is just as fitting in the days we live in. He says, Christ on the throne of God? No, man on the throne of God. The temptation which beset our Lord with such fascination and power is the very temptation which is besetting modern Christians. Heal bodies, cast out devils, feed the poor, and men will crown you king. The temptation is more powerful today than ever it has been in the history of the church to put men's needs first, not God, to spell God in the term humanity, to make God an etc. for blessing humanity. If you heal men and give them bread, what do you care about the claims of Jesus Christ? Health and happiness is what is wanted today, and Jesus Christ is simply exploited. I think that's so true. You know, we so often see people today looking for the the physical things. People just seem to go after Christ because they want healing or they want provision or they want success. You know, that's not what it's about. And uh, we'll we'll cover a little bit more as we go through the study. Verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come unto them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five or 20, uh, 20 or 30 furlongs, that's about three to four miles, uh, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. Now we need to bear in mind, these were trained fishermen. Uh, there are scholars that believe this was no ordinary storm that has blown up on the lake this night. Uh, but they then look and see Jesus coming to them. This is the occasion uh, that we actually find in uh, the other gospel accounts where Peter actually then walks on the water to Jesus. Verse 20, but he said unto them, it is I, be not afraid. Uh, verse 21 starts, he says, uh, then they willingly received him into the ship. 
It's just thinking of the Simon Peter situation where he walks there. You know, we often go through trials in our life, but you know, a good definition of a trial is something that we face when our eyes aren't on Jesus. You see, Peter was in the position that he was walking on the water looking at Jesus. The next minute, he's sinking. And one minute, he's looking at Jesus and everything's wonderful. The next minute, he's in the midst of a trial. But the circumstances had remained exactly the same. Nothing had changed apart from his perception and his eyes not being on Jesus. Verse 21 uh, continues, he says, And immediately the ship was at land whither they went. I love that, immediately. Uh, Oswald Chambers uh, makes the following comments. He says, We imagine we would be all right if a big crisis arose, but the big crisis will only reveal the stuff we are made of. It will not put anything into us. If God gives the call, of course I will rise to the occasion. You will not unless you have risen to the occasion in the workshop, unless you have been the real thing before God there. If you are not doing the thing that lies nearest because God has engineered it, when the crisis comes, instead of being revealed as fit, you'll be revealed as unfit. Crisis always reveals character. Another comment says, uh, It is only the loyal soul who believes that God engineers circumstances. We take such liberties with our circumstances. We do not believe that God engineers them, although we say we do. We treat the things that happen as if they were engineered by men. To be faithful in every circumstance means that we have only one loyalty, and that is to our Lord. You know, do we, as we sit here, do we believe that God is engineering our circumstances for us? You know, the predicaments we find ourselves in, do we see God's hand in there? Or do we think it's some haphazard range of events? Another quote by Oswald, he says, Suddenly God breaks up a particular set of circumstances and the realisation comes that we have been disloyal to him by not recognising that he had organised them. We never saw what he was after and that particular thing will never be repeated all the days of our life. The test of loyalty always comes just there. If we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he will alter them in two seconds when he chooses. I think that's fantastic. Okay, let's carry on. Verse 19. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, uh, sorry, we just read that, yes. And I just wanted to, again, make that point that then uh, they willingly received him in the ship and immediately the ship was at land. Jesus changed those circumstances in two seconds. As Oswald had commented, he can do, when the Lord wants to do that, he can do it. We just need to keep our eyes on him and, in a sense, let him into our boat. Verse 22 then, the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that, which, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. But this is the longest sentence in the Gospel of John, by the way. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Now, what's happening here is that they've realized that the disciples have gone. They knew that Jesus hadn't gone with his disciples, but all of a sudden Jesus isn't there. Where did he go? And so they go to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And uh, we seem to uh, find now that Jesus, actually, as they find him in Capernaum, uh, he's actually in the synagogue, actually teaching. We'll see that confirmed at the end of this chapter. But verse 25 we read, And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi. And that would indicate now that they're looking at somebody who is actually standing in the synagogue, no doubt with the, the scroll of scripture before him and teaching. And they ask him, Rabbi, when camest thou here? Now, how on earth did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You see, people will always follow, providing their needs are being met and they're, they're physically okay. You know, again, real life is not physical, it's spiritual. Until we get to that point of understanding that, we will continually chase after that which satisfies, satisfies us physically and complete, completely continue missing the point. Verse 27, Jesus says, Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for the meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him has God the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? This is a question that so many ask. How can we work for God? What can we do? Well, the answer is we can't do anything. We have to rest in the completed work of Jesus. It's a... Uh, almost ironic that so many people say, oh, I accepted Jesus. You know, no, 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 no. He accepted us. All we can do is receive from him the gift of everlasting life. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know, I don't need to do any work. There's nothing that you can do in regards to your eternal life. That's what Jesus said in verse 27. Um, you know, again, just but, uh, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life. He's saying that's what you should labor for. And they're asking, well, how do we attain it? By what, how, how, what work can we do? And Jesus is saying the only work, in inverted commas, you can do is to believe. That's all we can do on him uh, whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou that we may see and believe thee? What uh, doest thou work? Uh, you know, Jesus has just done these incredible miracles before them. He's fed over, certainly over 5,000 people, potentially up to 15,000 people. And they're aware of this incredible miracle that's taken place. Jesus has supernaturally got to the other side of the sea. And they're saying, well, you know, could you show us a sign? How are we going to know? And then they come up with their own suggestion of a sign that he could show them. Verse 31, they say, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. <laughs> Again, they're, they're looking to Moses as the one. They've already drawn this, this analogy that, that Jesus could be that prophet coming like Moses. And they're saying, well, look, Moses gave us bread to eat. You know, you could do that for us. You could provide for us. We wouldn't have to go shopping again. Verse 32, then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's saying, look, Moses didn't give it to you anyway. It was God that gave it to you. But now God is giving to you something far better. He's giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Just like the woman at the well that we saw in the previous session. She was looking here, this living water. She said, well, Lord, give me this water. You know, I won't have to come back to this well again. And these people are saying, well, Lord, give me this bread and I won't have to go shopping again. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Again, it's getting our eyes off that physical issue, you know, trying to um, understand that our real hunger and thirst is spiritual, not physical. And we can mask the spiritual yearnings by trying to feed the physical with whatever uh, appetites the physical nature will throw at us. But it won't solve the problem. We will always be continually empty. How many people have got excess money and wealth and riches and everything you could possibly desire, but they're empty? Because their real thirst, their real appetite is for that which is spiritual. And the only way that can be satisfied is by the true bread from heaven, being Jesus Christ himself. Verse 36, But I say unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. 
Uh, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. What a great comfort that is, that uh, those that come to him, uh, the ones that the Father has given, Jesus will not cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. You know, if it's everlasting, it goes on forever. If it's eternal, we can't lose it. You know, people have this debate about eternal security. Well, clearly, those that Jesus is saying believe on him have everlasting life. The Jews now uh, coming to the fray. Up until this point, it's been the people that have followed him across, and they're they're you know uh, questioning Jesus. But we now have this change of emphasis. It's the Jews now, the religious leaders. Um, they're going to kind of start getting in on this uh, situation. And we read verse forty-one. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, "I am the bread which came down from heaven." And they said, "Is this uh, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he said, I came down from heaven?'" You see, they, they see again that he's claiming this deity. He's claiming that he's God. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. And you can imagine, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. <laughs> no man can come unto me, says Jesus, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. People again sometimes have a problem with this, you know, that where's the free will if if god has foreordained those that are going to come to him then surely it's not up to us we don't get the choice well that's not the case at all because we're told here no man can come to me except the father draw him only the ones that the father draws can come to him but the ones that the father draws that will come to jesus are the ones that choose to come the, the problem only exists because we live in time but god inhabits eternity And because God is outside of time, he knows the end from the beginning. He knew those that would choose him. And because of that, he's foreordained that they should be the ones that come to him. Again, it's it's one of those conundrums that's hard for us to unravel in our brains. But we'll, we'll carry on. Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Uh, it, some scholars believe here that, that as he's, is this, he's saying, it is written in the prophets, that Jesus is standing there and this scroll of Isaiah, which is where this quote comes from, is standing before him. He's actually reading off this scroll. And he says, every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. See, it, it, there's a willful decision on the part of every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, um, he has seen the Father. Jesus claiming himself to be of God, of the substance, of the nature of God, God manifest in the flesh. Verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Again, we've, this, is, this, is one of the, this is the first of the I am statements, uh, this I am the bread of life, as we go through the, John's Gospel. Uh, Jesus carries on and says, Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Verse 49 again, Jesus says there, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. You see, they were saying to Jesus, look, if you could do this miracle, if you could provide bread for us, then we would believe you. 
Jesus is saying, look, you, Moses provided you bread from heaven, but you, those people still died that ate that bread. What Jesus is offering is something that will give you eternal life, not just prolong your life for a time. The Jews therefore strove amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us of his flesh to eat? And this is uh, one of the, the most misunderstood uh, portions of scripture that we're coming up to now. But uh, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is so important and we need to spend a little bit of time just unraveling this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you are to be born again, if you are a Christian, you have to eat of the flesh and drink of his blood. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll go through and we'll, we'll look at it. We can carry on with the text. Uh, verse 54, whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. Jesus is talking about a very intimate relationship here. As the Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. This is as we just said a moment ago. So clearly here, Jesus is not advocating cannibalism. Uh, That's very clear. Um, But I think the way to understand this is, in uh, the book of Exodus, we find the Passover lamb was to be eaten by way of identification with what it represented. That was that their lives were being spared when God was judging and bringing judgment on the firstborn of the land of Egypt. In Leviticus also, the flesh of the sin and the trespass offerings were to be eaten. Uh, as identification with that offering. So really, to eat of the flesh was to be identified with the offering, acknowledging that its death was there in place of the one that was guilty. So as somebody's eating this flesh, they're eating the flesh of someone or some, some animal in the, the context of the, the law, but in regard to Jesus, it's in the flesh of someone whose uh, body was uh, given in place of them because of their guilt. So, in, in a sense, to eat of the flesh of Christ is to be identified with his death in our place. And that means admitting we are guilty. You see, if you are to eat of the flesh of Christ, then you've got to admit that you're a guilty sinner because the, the reason you're, you're eating of the flesh is by identification with his sacrifice. His sacrifice was because and on account of your sin. So to eat of his flesh is to acknowledge that you're a guilty sinner in need of a saviour. Oswald Chambers makes this uh, fantastic comment. He says, repentance to be true must issue in holiness or it is not New Testament repentance. Repentance means not only sorrow and distress for the wrong done, but the acceptance of the atonement of Jesus, which will make me what I've never been, i.e. holy. Again, if repentance is true, it must issue in holiness. If you look at uh, a Christian or so-called Christian and there's no uh, growth in their life, there's no holiness about them, then you've got to question whether they are actually connected to that root. You've got to question whether there's any, been ever any repentance there. If there's repentance, then that repentance itself necessitates an understanding of our predicament and our sin and therefore will result in a changed life. Leviticus 17.11, moving on to talk about the blood now, says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. 
And in Hebrews 9.22, we read, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So why does the blood make atonement? Well, because the blood speaks of life. Quite clearly, without blood, we die. But on Calvary, Jesus' blood was shed for the sins of the world. His life was given in exchange for yours and mine. You see, in that way, God's mercy and justice were both satisfied in one transaction. So to drink his blood is identification with his life. Now, obviously, we know that Jesus died, was put in the tomb, but on the third day, he rose to new life. So all who are in Christ, who are identified with his life by drinking of his blood, as it were, have new life in them. So the flesh of Christ speaks of his sacrificial death in our place. It requires our acknowledging of our sin and by implication necessitates dying to our old life. If we truly understand what eating of his flesh means, his identification with the fact that he died on account of our sin, then it's going to result in that old life in us dying and us living to a new life. And the blood of Christ speaks of his life, and if we are partakers of his life, we'll also be beneficiaries of that new life. There's a very interesting example we find in the book of Genesis. You're familiar with the, uh, the butler and the baker that are thrown into prison with Joseph who have dreams and he interprets them. Um, the butler uh, gets the first interpretation and Joseph says, The three branches are three days, yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place. And thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou was his butler. So it's a really positive report, that's just what he wanted. Not so for the baker. We read, uh, the three baskets are three days, yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee, and shall hang thee on a tree, and the bird shall eat thy flesh from off thee. Now again, um, there's so much hidden in these things. We should get a hint from the Holy Spirit here, because we have bread and wine and three days uh, in this, this uh, little uh, account that we have recorded there for us in Genesis 40. You see, the butler um, is we, we referring to the cup, Christ's life, Christ's blood, who was lifted up after three days and given new life. He was restored um, into that position he had before. Um, and that's what the, the cup speaks of. But the baker, on the other hand, um, his represents the bread, obviously, which is Christ's body. Well, he was hung on a tree. And his flesh was eaten as payment for transgression. Now, it was the birds that ate his flesh, and because of his upsetting Pharaoh, he's in that predicament. But in the type, you see, Christ's flesh is eaten as payment for transgression. It was Christ's body was on that tree in our place. Um, this is exactly what we find in First uh, Corinthians, where we read, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, uh, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Paul's saying this is the revelation he received from the Lord about um, this, what we refer to as now communion. But the body was broken. It's on account of the sin. But after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, again, the flesh of Christ speaks of his sacrificial death in our place, and the blood of Christ speaks of his life. Again, that verse, uh, except you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You know, another way of putting that is unless you repent and are born again, 
You're not saved. It's as simple as that. And so much of the modern gospel takes out the whole idea and the need of repentance. It tells us that we're great people, we're getting better, and nobody should tell us that we're bad. And uh, well, you've, you've heard these, these people go on. Uh, but clearly from Scripture, unless you repent and are born again, you will have no new life in you. In Acts 2, verse 37 through 39, uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So here again we have that repenting and that receiving of new life. Let's carry on then. Verse 59. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So again, Jesus was speaking in the synagogue uh, for that uh, little episode we've just seen there. Verse 60. Many therefore of disciples, when they had heard this, uh, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Well, was it hard because they didn't understand it or because they did understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man... And sent up where he was before. I think this what and if is great. It's really stop and consider the reality of this. You know, where do you stand tonight? In our own lives, where are we? Are we looking for proof? Are we looking just for blessing? Do we really know who Jesus Christ is? You know, if we were to see Jesus, what and if we see him now in all his glory and majesty, how would it change and affect the decisions we make in our lives, the way that we, we think about things, our priorities? You know, it would take our focus off the fleshly life immediately and we'd be thinking spiritually. And this is what Jesus is saying, what and if, just consider, you know, if you see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, what impact would that have? Would that change the way you view this? You see, we need to snap out of the illusion that we call um, life and open our eyes to that which is real, which is the spiritual. And Jesus carries on in that vein. He says, it's the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. You see, again, we have that kind of paradox there, but it's, it's not really a paradox because the only ones that will come to Christ are the ones that the Father has chosen. But the, fa- the ones that the Father has chosen are the ones who choose to come. It's as simple as that. We get to choose to come, but if we choose to come, then we know that we've been chosen. You know, people may say, well, I'm not sure whether I'm chosen. Well, then come, and then you know you're chosen. It's, a, it's as simple as that. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus, uh, they said, Jesus, under twelve, will you go? Uh, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter uh, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. You know, Peter said some uh, some silly things during his time, uh, but this is probably one of the best things that he ever utters. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he, uh, was, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. We have um, 
often this, uh, this, this question about Judas, did he backslide, you know, and is this an evidence of somebody that once believed and then fell away? No, no, clearly there's a hint given here in verse 70 where Jesus says, one of you is a devil. Uh, that's a good indication for us to realize that, that Judas was not saved. He was a false convert. Yeah, there may have been an initial show of leaves and everything else. But the incredible thing is that he lived amongst the disciples through this time. And the disciples didn't know. They didn't realize. He was going along, playing the game, as it were. Um, and we have so many people in the churches like that. You know, even at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, you know, it's the one that dips in, 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 the, in the, the dip with me. Um, that is the one that's going to betray me. Or Judas does it. And they still don't get it. They still think that when Judas leaves the room, that he's going off to give money to the poor. Because Judas is such a good guy. He cares for the poor. He cares for those things. But of course, we know from, from the record we have that Judas really didn't care too much about the poor. He was only in it for his own ends. He was a thief, we're told, and he kept the money back. And Judas is a classic example of a false convert. There's um, a couple of interesting quotes, one by Tozer. He said, it's my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ and they have not been saved. You see, again, this goes back to the, the, the parable of the soils we looked at earlier in the study. There are many people who don't understand the word. They hear it, but they don't understand it. It doesn't sink down. It doesn't take root. Unless the word of God takes root in your life, there will be no change. James uh, Kennedy said, um, The vast majority of people who are members of churches in America today are not Christians. I say that without the slightest contradiction. I base it on empirical evidence of 24 years of examining thousands of people. Wow. I mean, Paul said to the Corinthians, didn't he? Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. And we need to do that. We need to check to see if we really are truly saved. So many in the church just go along with emotions and they've never come to that place of eating the flesh, drinking the blood. And again, that symbolizes that we should understand, we should be identified with Christ's death in our place, understanding that it's on account of our sin that Jesus was crucified. And then understanding, again, that the blood of Christ represents his life. We have to repent, uh, be identified with the, with the body, and have that new life, be born again. Uh, again, being identified with the blood. So that brings us to the end of the, the study uh, for this time. Let's just bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father God, as we just think on these things, Lord, we pray you impress upon our hearts the the importance it is to make sure that we are saved, to examine ourselves, to see that we are in the faith, Lord, to make sure that we have truly understood. And Father, for those of us that have done that, Lord, we thank you for the assurance we can have that we are saved, that we have passed from death to life. That Lord, as you said, if we eat of the flesh, if we drink of the blood, we will have life, new life within us. We thank you for these things. And Lord, we just thank you that your word is living and powerful, that it will change us, Lord, and those uh, that read it and hear it. We pray that your word really will take root in our lives. And Lord, bring forth fruit. Uh, bring forth fruit in abundance, we ask. And so Lord, we thank you for this time we can spend together. And Lord, we just pray that you keep us growing in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Saviour. For it's in his name we ask. Amen.